you would. Romans chapter 15. So we are going to take a, a brief diversion from 1 Thessalonians because as I was preparing for 1 Thessalonians 5 this week, uh, the passage we were to be in was uh, it's a, a big passage with a lot in it. And so rather than do that on a Lord's table morning uh, and keeping us here till the Lord's table became not the Lord's su- supper but the Lord's lunch, uh, then we, would, uh, we wouldn't want to... Uh, let anybody miss the Detroit Lions or anything like that either. So we'll pick up in, uh, pick up in chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians uh, next week. But this is, uh, this is a passage here in Romans 15 I've been, I've been studying for uh, a couple of weeks as we've been considering it in Wednesday night and some of the issues and implications of these passages. So what I want to do this morning, I think this will tie in uh, well to, uh, to, to the Lord's table and, and the call for... Uh, for us to come together and remember what Christ has done uh, on our behalf. So I think this passage will tie in well for that and hopefully be a beneficial uh, discussion for us this morning. Uh, until a few weeks ago, uh, this, this short prayer, which what we're going to look at is chapter 15, verses 5 to 7, but this short prayer never really jumped off the page to me. Until just a few weeks ago, as we were working through prayer meeting and different prayers that are contained in Scripture, as I considered this one, I considered where it fits in the context of what Paul's saying here in the book of Romans. Uh, it, it really became a, a, an impactful passage for me, understanding it and its, con- it its context. And so my, my hope and my prayer this morning is this passage is helpful for you, helpful for us as we seek to, uh, to live out uh, Christ's likeness in, the, in a community of believers together. So let's read this passage together, and then uh, we'll begin by, by praying. Romans 15, verse number 5. Apostle Paul says this. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the chance to come again with our brothers and sisters in Christ and to seek your will for our lives. We know that your will for us is contained in the pages of Scripture, and we look no other place than to what you have revealed for us, because these are the words of life, and they teach us how to live in obedience to you and what it means to walk before you in a way that pleases you. And so, Lord, we would ask that as we come together this morning, that would be the desire of our hearts to to know you better, to know your word better, and to understand what you demand of us as followers of Christ. There are so many challenges that that plague the unity of, of churches today. And so it's good for us to take the Lord's table and to be reminded of of the fact that you have saved us out of our sin to come together to remember you together and your work that uh, you've done for us in salvation. So help us, we pray, Lord, to come with clear minds and clear hearts, eager to uh, walk in what we learned today, and may you be pleased with, with how we respond to this passage. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
So what we see this morning in these short verses by the Apostle Paul is essentially this. By God's enabling grace, we are to live in harmony with one another for his glory. Okay? By God's enabling grace, we are to live in harmony with one another for his glory. Now, as I said, this passage here in, in Romans chapter 5, this prayer, verses 5 and 6, and really will include verse 7, is, is not something that we understand the significance of until we understand the backdrop against what is being written here. The Apostle Paul is in a, in a large section uh, of Romans addressing this issue of differences between uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we read in our scripture reading, uh, there were some significant challenges to unity in the, in the church here at Rome. And so what we have is this prayer serves as something of a conclusion to everything that Paul has said in the previous verses starting in chapter 14, verse 1. Now, let's understand then, let's do a quick sort of flyover of Romans chapter 14 so we can understand the issues, and then we'll understand what Paul's praying for in chapter 15, verses 5 and 7. So the early church, and you know this well because it's contained throughout the New Testament, was made up of Jewish believers and Gentile believers together. And Jewish believers were saved out of a strict system of worship which commanded observance to the law and all of its regulations. And although the law was never intended to be used in this way, for some, they had a legalistic understanding of the law, thinking that obedience to the law could earn a right standing before God and earn them favor in God's sight. And this is the system from which they were saved, rules and regulations and the keeping of the commandments. Gentiles, on the other hand, were saved out of a completely different context. Most of them, or many of them, were saved out of pagan idolatry and all the immorality that was associated with the temple. And so when these two groups of individuals came to know Christ as their Lord and Savior, the challenge was to have them come together as one body in Christ. For the Jews, their salvation was, we might say, something of a loosening or at least the, the lifestyle, their new lifestyle was something of a, of a loosening of the restrictions that they had under the Mosaic law. But for the Gentiles, there was something of, of a tightening when it came to the way that they, that they lived, okay? In the terms of, of not having the, the freedoms to live in, in, in lawlessness like they did before. And the great challenge in the early church, as I said, was bringing these two groups of believers together. It would have been a lot easier to just do one service for the Jews and one service for the Gentiles, right? Because that's what we like. We like a church where the people are like us, okay? And the more differences we have, the more challenges there are to unity. And so it would have been a lot easier if they just had a a church for the Jews and a church for the Gentiles. But the problem is that would not have displayed the power of the gospel to bring people together. And so they met together as one body in Christ. Now, in this section of Romans chapter 14, Paul writes to help these believers think about their differences, and his primary concern in this whole section of Romans is the unity of brothers and sisters in Christ. And we see this because the entire passage is bookended by this one word, welcome. Right? So if you go back and look at chapter 14, verse 1, he says, As for the one who is weak in faith, 
what? Welcome him. And then he finishes this whole section in chapter 15, verse 7. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul's primary concern in writing this whole section is that they be welcoming to one another, have a genuine love for one another as they live in a community where they have differences of opinions on these these matters. Now the issue in this passage is that the Gentile believers understood the freedoms that they had in Christ, that they had no obligations to keep the Mosaic law. They were free from the restrictions of eating certain meats according to the Mosaic law, and they were free from the restrictions of observing certain holy days that were according to the Mosaic law. And to make matters worse, the Gentiles were likely living out these freedoms in the face of their more sensitive brothers and sisters from the Jewish community. And the Jewish Christians, on the other hand, could not exercise these same freedoms on account of their more sensitive consciences. Because growing up, they had been taught since day one that these matters of of eating meat and observing certain days to not do so was considered a sin. And so to disregard the Old Testament restrictions went against everything that they believed to be right from their very earliest days. And we should note this, that that these Jewish believers, they're, they're referred to as weak in faith, according to chapter 14, verse 1. And it's not saying that they were weak in faith in the sense that they were not believers or deficient in saving faith. But, and they also were not saying that the, the commands of the Mosaic law should be enforced on, on believers as a means to earn them salvation in God's sight. These are not legalistic Jews here in, in Romans chapter 14 who are weak in faith. Rather, probably what's being, uh, probably the issue here is that these are Jewish Christians who believed that obedience to the law was just part of their sanctification in, in Christ. Okay? If they were legalistic, we would expect Paul to give them a stern rebuke like Jesus gives to the Pharisees in, in, in the Gospels. But, but that's not what Paul says in Romans 14. He sort of patiently encourages them and walks them along and tells the stronger brothers not to ruin the faith of the weaker brothers. So these aren't legalists here in, in Romans chapter 14. Rather, what it means that they were weak in faith is they couldn't wrap their minds around the fact that God had now removed the restrictions of the law and they had freedom to eat all kinds of meats and freedom to not not observe one day as being more sanctified than the other. And they, they, they were weak in faith because they didn't believe what God had now revealed to be the case. And in such a setting, the unity of the church was fragile. Right? Anytime we have disagreements between brothers and sisters in Christ, the unity is at, at, a, at a threat. And so the Apostle Paul writes to encourage them, right? So what does, he, what does he say? He gives them two primary responsibilities in chapter 14, verse 3, right? Because the options are either, the temptations either you, you have spite toward those who are more limited or judgmentalism expressed toward those who are more free. So what's he say in chapter 14, verse 3? He says this, for Christ, oh, that's chapter 15. Chapter 14, verse 3, he says this, let not the one who eats 
despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Now, in these matters, the scriptures were on the side of the strong brother, okay, the Gentile Christian. What's happening in Romans 14 is these are not disputes about things on which the scriptures are silent, but rather the scriptures had already made clear in the New Testament in the apostles' teaching that now eating certain meats was acceptable and observing days was not required, but there was freedom from the law. And so in this case, the strong brothers, they actually had the scriptures on their side, but it was the conscience of the weak brothers who could not who could not participate here. And as I said, the temptation was for those more free individuals to despise those who had the strict conscience. And the temptation was for those who had the strict conscience to to judge the motives of those who had the more free conscience. And, And Paul's encouragement is, listen, God has welcomed both groups. You should welcome them too. And furthermore, he says, we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account not for how other people lived, but for how we have lived in our faith. Then as the passage continues, really as you go throughout the rest of the chapter, what we see is there are far more instructions given to the strong brothers, the ones who have the freedoms, than there are to the weak brothers, the ones who have more of a restricted conscience. Paul does not say to the weak in Romans 14, just get over it right? Just, just get over it, move on from these restrictions, and, and start living in your freedom. That's not what he says. Instead, he says, if someone can't participate in something in faith, then to him, it is sin, is how he finishes in chapter 14. But the instructions to the strong, those who feel the ability to, to practice their freedoms, they are to limit themselves for the sake of their brother that they put no cause of stumbling before him and destroy the unity of the church. Look at chapter 14, verse 20. Paul's admonition, he says, Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Okay? Something as, as, as minor as food should not stand in the way of the unity that God desires in his church. Now, to be clear, the strong are not commanded to limit their freedoms permanently. But when there is the occasion that their freedoms would cause another brother brother to stumble, then they are to limit themselves in order to preserve the unity of the faith. So then Paul sort of concludes the whole section, chapter 15, verse 1, when he says this, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of you please his neighbor for his good to build him up. So, that's the backdrop of this passage. There are significant disagreements and differences between these Gentile believers who feel their freedoms are are, are warranted and the the Jewish believers who are more restricted. So that's that's the backdrop. And then we see this closing prayer in chapter 15, verses 5 to 7, when he says this, And may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together 
you may with one voice glorify God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ and welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So after he addresses these these major disagreements, he turns to God in prayer and he says, this is what I'm praying. I'm praying for harmony, that you live in peace and unity for the glory of God. Now, with that backdrop in mind, let's turn our attention then to Paul's prayer in verses 5 to 7. We're going to look at three things from this passage. First of all, the source of unity. Second of all, the purpose of unity. And thirdly, the standard for unity. So let's begin first with the source of unity in verse 5. Notice as Paul wants to see unity in this church, what he does is he turns to the source of unity who is God, and he turns to God in prayer. Okay? He turns to God in prayer because God is the source of our unity in faith. So he prays to God, and he refers to God as the, the one who, and this is, he says, God of endurance and God of encouragement, but really what the, how this is, should be translated is that God is the source of, of endurance and the source of encouragement or the NIV words it this way the god who gives endurance and the god who gives encouragement that these things they come from god and they enable us to live in unity with one another now it's at this point we should recognize then right if god is the one who enables and equips unity, we should stop here and enable and understand this, that, that our pursuit of unity does not start with you and me pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just saying, we're going to make this happen, right? I'm going I'm to pull myself together and I'm just going to live in unity with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because if it's dependent on us, then the unity is going to fail every time, Okay? But what he does first is he, he, he draws our attention to the fact that God is the one who enables us for this task. So in order to pursue unity, the first place we need to go is to draw on God's enabling grace to help us live in unity. Right? That's, that's, that's the, the concept here of, of Galatians chapter 5 when he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? We're saved. He gives us the Spirit. And now the, fruits, the fruit of, of, of being possessed by the Spirit are things like love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness. All the things that make for unity really are the fruit of what God is doing in our lives. And something similar is being said here, right? So in order to live in unity with each other, we must be enabled by God to do so. Okay? We have to draw on God's enabling grace to live in unity. Now, he says two things that God gives to encourage and enable unity. He says this, he gives endurance and he gives encouragement. Okay, so he prays that may the God, may, may God grant these, these two things. So first of all, what does he mean here when he says endurance? Well, sometimes the word endurance can be translated as patience. Right? Remember the King James translation of, of James chapter 1, when it says, you know, now I'm, I'm blanking on it. Um, Consider a joy 
when you fall under various trials. Uh, and and he, what, he, what, he, what he says there, the Lord gives, gives patience that you may be able to, to, to stand under these things. Okay, so this word here can be translated as endurance or steadfastness or even patience. In this context, I like the word patience, right? Because why would God grant patience in harmony, in order to live in harmony? Because he knows that we need it, right? In order to live in harmony with one another, one of the things we're going to need as a gift from God is patience. The ability to be patient with one another. Right? I mean, we all have seen examples of, of impatience, right? When we get in, get in our houses and our family situations and people begin to be impatient with one another, right? In order to make things work and have a healthy home, we need the patience to bear with one another. Part of living in a sin-cursed world is that we are going to encounter various threats to unity. And the mark of a, of a healthy church is not so much the absence of conflict, but rather the wisdom to work through conflict in a biblical way, or to have the patience to bear with one another in love and, and grace. So what we need is God to give us patience to live in unity. But the second thing he says is that God also gives encouragement. Now why would God grant why would God need to grant encouragement in in order to, to live in harmony? Well, because probably of how discouraging disunity can be. Right? If you've lived in a tense situation, you know the conflict can suck the life out of you. And the only way we can survive is by drawing on the enabling grace of God to encourage us to live in harmony. Okay, so God grants these things in verse 5. He continues and he says this, May God, who, who, the God of encouragement and the God of endurance, may he, and he says this, grant you to live in such harmony with one another. Now the literal translation here is, when he says to live in harmony, is to think the same thing. But I like the word that the ESV uses here when it says harmony because I think it captures what Paul is, is asking. Okay, Paul is not actually saying, I want you guys to think the same thing on every issue. He's not looking for uniformity. He's looking for, for unity. There's a difference. Okay, So when Paul says in Romans 14, as he goes through these issues of, of the weak and the strong, at no point in Romans 14 does he say you're to think you're, you're all to think like the strong or you're all to take the position of the weak. That's not what he says. Like if, if he was looking for uniformity, he would say this is the position you must take. But instead what he says is you're to live in harmony as you pursue these Christian virtues of, of love and kindness and grace with each other. That even in your diversity, there should be a harmony and unity that exists. I think the word harmony is helpful because it gives us the picture of, a, of, of something of a choir. All right? when, when a choir sings, what makes it so beautiful are the various parts that each sing. If you've ever listened to, to the group, sometimes there will be six to eight different harmonies taking place in one group. They're all singing one song, but they're singing different parts, and it's, it's that element that makes it so beautiful. And as the church 
lives in unity, the idea is that we're not all to be singing melody, but rather as we're gifted differently, as we have different backgrounds and different, different, different makeups in our, our congregation, we're to all be striving toward the same goal of Christ-likeness and building one another up. Okay, so the word harmony there is a helpful analogy. And this all conforms, he said, in accordance with Christ Jesus. Or in other words, Philippians 2.5, we're to have the same mind that Christ had. And, and regardless of our differences, if we have the mind that Christ had and pursue unity, well, then unity will be possible. So the first thing we see here in this, in this passage is that the source of unity is God. So let's just acknowledge this reality, that unity is a challenge. And the greater the difference, the greater the challenges to unity. But if unity is going to take place, then we must draw on God as the source of our unity, the one who gives encouragement, the one who gives endurance. Now, when was the last time that in the face of a conflict or in the feeling of, of despising or wanting to judge another person, when's the last time you stopped and you said, Lord, help me to live in unity and harmony with this brother or sister in Christ? Okay? When was the last time you actually drew on the enabling grace of God to help you live in harmony with another brother and sister in Christ? Because right? the reality is it's hard to maintain anger towards someone and pray for them at the same time. Right? But as we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ, the Lord helps us to soften our hearts toward other people. Because that's part of what it means for God to enable us to live in unity. Now secondly, we move on and we see the purpose of unity. Okay? The source of unity is God. The purpose of unity is this. Notice that at the beginning of verse 6, he uses the word that. He uses the word that in verse 6. He says, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? You might be able to translate that word in order that. Or this is the, this is the purpose for, for unity. And the purpose for unity is that together with one voice we can glorify God. Okay, that is the goal and the purpose of our unity. Now, there's a difference, I think it's helpful, between immediate goals and, and ultimate goals. Okay, so if I could maybe draw the illustration this way. If I'm going to go to the grocery store and I'm going to uh, purchase bread and milk and bring it back to the house, that's the ultimate goal, okay, to, to get the bread and milk, to bring it back. Now, on the road to doing this, there are other smaller more immediate goals that I need to accomplish as, as we go, right? I need to, to get in my car, to get out of the driveway onto the road, to make the appropriate turns to get there. There are a lot, of, a lot of goals along the way that I need to accomplish in order to accomplish the ultimate goal, which is to get bread and milk and, and bring it home. Now, sometimes what happens is when it comes to unity, we make the immediate goals the ultimate goal, right? So we make the ultimate goal... Just, just unity and harmony, or the getting along with, with everyone, and that becomes, that becomes the goal. Like, like getting along with everybody, is, 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 it's much better to live in that kind of environment than it is where there's, there's hostility, and so the goal becomes harmony. If we can have that harmony, then, 
then, then, we're, then we're good. Well, what happens is sometimes we, we seek that harmony at the expense of, of the truth or at the expense of, of actually dealing with somebody biblically. We just overlook conflict in order to, 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 to live with one another in some sort of, 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 of fake peace, okay? But we, we, what we wanted to consider is when we t- think about the, the ultimate goal, in this passage here, the ultimate goal of unity is the glory of God. So we don't, we don't make anything else, we don't, how, how would I say it? We don't, we don't sacrifice the glory of God for the goal of unity. Okay, the goal of, of unity is always the glory of God. And sometimes there may be divisions among us because the glory of God is necessary, but the goal isn't just harmony. The goal of harmony is that we would live to the glory of God. Sometimes in the pursuit of unity, we just want to give up, don't we? We just want to quit. We've tried hard enough to keep our peace with this person. We've tried hard enough to keep our peace with our our spouse. And we just want to throw in the towel when it comes to the pursuit of unity. But what verse 6 teaches us is that there is there is always this high goal for pursuing unity, and that is the glory of God. Like, if we can have no other motivation to live in unity, it's this. I want to live for the glory of God. So whether I eat or whether I drink or whether I relate to people, I do it all for the glory of God. And lastly, we come then to the standard for unity. The standard for unity, we see this in verse 7. In light of all this, the God enables us and the, the goal is, is his glory. In light of all this, Paul says, therefore, welcome one another. Well, here the discussion has come full circle, has it not? In 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him not to quarrel over opinions. And now we have the, the, the full circle of the conversation. We have this command repeated, therefore, welcome one another. The call is, is to the strong and the weak both. Hey, it's not just for the strong to welcome. It's not just for the weak to welcome. But all parties involved are to welcome one another. Both groups must pursue what makes for harmony. Now, we should note this, that when Paul says, welcome one another, he means more than just tolerate one another, all right? That's not what he says in 14.1. He doesn't say, listen, as for the one who is weak in the faith, tolerate him, but not to quarrel over opinions. And he doesn't finish by saying, therefore, tolerate one another as Christ has tolerated you. Okay, that's not the standard that is, that is given for us, okay? The idea of welcoming one another is that you welcome one another as part of your family. No despising and no judging, but a warm welcome with one another. Now you say, man, that's just way too hard. All right, I, I'm just, I'm not really a people person. I'm more of an introvert, Okay. So that the idea of welcoming is just not up my alley. I don't think I can do this. You don't know the people in my home. They drive me nuts. You don't know the people I work with. They drive me nuts. And the people in church, they're worse than, than any of them. All right? So notice then 
that, that Paul gives a standard. He says in verse 7, Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Now that's a really high standard. Right? And that sets the, that sets the measure or the example for how we're to think about welcoming one another. Well, how has Christ welcomed us? Well, look back at chapter 15, verse 3. We're told this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, and he quotes Psalm 69 here, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. That Christ was willing to take our sins on himself to suffer the just wrath of God on the cross for our sins so that you and I could be welcomed into his family. And yet we sit here and we say, well, I'll welcome this person, but I won't welcome that person. Or I'll tolerate this person, but don't expect me to tolerate this problem, this person. That's not the standard. The standard is this. As Christ welcomed you and bore the difficulties of welcoming you, that's the standard for how we welcome one another and make them part of our family. So anytime we feel like we can't live in harmony with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we come back to the gospel. We come back to what it cost Christ to welcome us, and we hold that out as the supreme example for how we should welcome others to the glory of God. Now, this is one of the benefits of the Lord's table. Because lest we forget what it took Christ to welcome us, we're reminded monthly of this reality that it cost him his life in order that we might be reconciled to God. And it reminds us that this is the example of of how we should welcome one another. So every time we come back to the Lord's table, it's a reminder not just of what it cost Christ, but what, how we're to relate to one another in the same way that, that Christ took on the burden and welcomed us. And so, friends, by God's enabling grace, we are to live in harmony with one another for his glory. So may these comments and this passage set the table for our observance of the Lord's table together. Let's, let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for the truths that we see in this passage. And then they meet reality and it becomes extremely difficult. So there has to be something supernatural to make this kind of harmony happen. And it is supernatural because you've regenerated us and equipped us to follow the example of Christ and to welcome one another. Lord, I don't know the condition of my brothers and sisters' hearts here this morning and what kind of divisions may exist or frustrations with other people. Lord, help us to take those situations and bring, them, bring this passage to bear on them. That by your grace you've enabled us, you've encouraged us, you've given us patience so that we can pursue harmony. You've given us the example of Christ and how he welcomed us. And you've given us the supreme motivation that this is all for your glory. We don't pursue this for our own satisfaction. 
but we pursue this because we want you to be magnified in the way we relate to one another. So thank you, Lord, for welcoming us into your family. And may we be welcoming to one another as well. We ask your blessing in our time and observing what you have provided for us in Jesus Christ. May you receive all the glory and honor for what we say.